Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Dallas Taylor, who's the owner of DeFacto Sound, a world-class audio production house that's worked with brands like Netflix, Nike, HBO, Bethesda, Tesla, and countless others. Dallas and his team at DeFacto Sound also create the podcast known as 20,000 Hertz, which is the number one audio-focused podcast in the entire world. Each one of those episodes takes 200 to 300 hours to make. So definitely go listen to 20,000 Hertz after you're done listening to this if you haven't already. It's incredible. In this episode, Dallas and I talk about running an audio business, how to be picky with clients, why creating content online can bring us tons of opportunities that we never would have seen otherwise, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Dallas Taylor. This is the best part about running an audio podcast is that (laughs) everyone just does the audio thing and gets it perfectly. You would think. You're way more advanced than me. You have way more episodes than me. Surprisingly, it's so hard to believe this, but in our show, the worst mics that we have received in the past has come from audio people. That's even funnier. I love that. (laughs) Sadly, it's like always the same type of story, too. We're like very polite. We're like, hey, we're like the world's leading show about sound. 100,000 people plus are going to hear this. You know, can you send over a quick one, two, three, just to where we can make sure all our ducks in a row before we do this very intense multiple people (laughs) stopping their jobs to (laughs) focus on this interview. Just send us a one, two, three. And, uh, Multiple occasions, uh, audio folks will be very, very offended that we ask, and and usually we go, okay, this is the this is the attitude we're trying to crush with twenty thousand hertz, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm I feel really bummed about this, but we just can't do this. The way that I look at it is just like if you're an audio person, you could set this up in your sleep and it's do a so quick one, two, three and send it to us just to give us some, yeah. you know, peace of mind. But two seconds. <laughs> so much pressure on our show, and it's just like all I want to do is just get a clean mic. But it's very sad because some of the worst. recordings have come from audio people non-audio people totally cool we'll send them a mic they're happy with it that's the funniest thing i would expect the exact opposite (laughs) i would too it's always a bummer when that happens it's kind of soul crushing when we research research we find exactly the person that we want to talk to we reach out hey you know you have this very specific thing we want to talk to you about they're like okay cool and then we kind of get through the process hey it's scheduled for thursday can you just send us a mic check just where we can like just make sure we're we're in sync here and then then it's just like crickets or we'll follow hey just wanted to make sure you you got this and then on more than one occasion we have gotten completely told off like so really like i do this all the time like you don't need to ask me for this sort of thing that's and I'm crazy like, this reminds me of why i started twenty thousand hertz <laughs> 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 to crush this attitude of like elitism and <laughs> i mean that leads perfectly into like the first question i have is you are running literally the number one audio focused podcast in the world, which is incredible. And you you cater it to an audience for people like me who are also sound people. And then also to generalists. I send your podcast to tons of people who know nothing about audio and they love it. They, just, they absolutely love it. So I'm curious, like, 
what made you first think, okay, I'm going to use my skills in multiple places, starting a podcast from starting off as a sound designer. And then also, how did you determine, no, this is the audience I want to hit. I want to crush this kind of elitism in, in this audio world and make it so everyone can come in. There were kind of two aspects why I wanted to do the show. The first aspect is I wanted to make uh, like something that made audio feel like very uh, approachable and friendly and, and an art form unto itself. Uh, I don't really love like the terms like sound effects editor or something. I'm sure people are listening right now and they're sound effects editors. Totally get where they're, where they're coming from. But even just kind of like it took so long for even the term sound designer to come up. Uh, and then there's still debate in 2021 about like whether or not you're a sound designer or not. And, and I just think that like it's kind of just semantics that just hurt ourselves more than anything. So that was one is just making something that's like super approachable. And then the other aspect is a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, just being in kind of in the video world where sound is considered like a finishing task. Like, that's adorable what you do, but let our editor and all our producers handle everything. And then when we get it to you, like, you just, you just do your thing, we'll appease you. So I, I, like, I wanted to be able to communicate how important this is because we have all these senses. And as humans, we curate without any permission our, our other four senses. And that, you know, our sense of sight, we're very uh, visual creatures. That's normal. It's awesome that we curate all the stuff that we like to look at. Sense of touch, you know, we, we get clothes that, li- that we like and we have HVAC and we curate all that stuff. Sense of smell, you know, candles and deodorants and, and uh, sewage and all that stuff. We curate it. We don't have to have permission for that. And then what is this other one? We have a, uh, oh, taste. Oh, I curate that all the time and I don't <laughs> need permission for it. But in, in the audio world, it's like we've culturally at least here in the U.S., we've kind of thought of hearing as being this thing for audiophiles. Or we just think music and then we're done. But the reality of the sonic world is the vast majority of the sonic world is not music. I love music and music's amazing. But it felt like out of all these senses and then music kind of commanding the entire sense of hearing, felt like there's no real place to tell really interesting pop mass audience stories about sound. And, uh, and I'd heard 99% Invisible do it quite a few times. And the 99PI kind of veered into architecture and reading the plaque and really kind of made a, made a focus of their show uh, over time being that. And there was still that gap of sound. And so I, um, I've known Roman Mars, who's the host of that for a while, and uh, just kind of slowly went, hey, I really want to do this thing. I love this aspect of it. I don't want to step on your toes or whatnot. And he's just the coolest. So he even helped kind of amplify that show right off the bat, which kind of then got us on a pretty big uh, stage really quickly. Nice. Yeah. So I'm curious, was there somebody, maybe it was Roman Mars, or maybe something that made you say, oh, yeah, this is possible. Like it opened up your perspective to instead of just focusing on sound, you're like, wait, no, there's so much more. There's TED Talks I can do. There's podcasts I can do. All that sort of stuff. That all came with time. I mean, for me, it was just like, you know, simple things like the, our for earliest shows were like, who is the voice of Siri? Because we all knew the voice. It's all changed since then. But at the time, we knew that voice so intimately. And I'd seen YouTube videos and stuff. And uh, I just assumed that there was probably other podcasts about sound already out there. I know about like, um, you know, sound industry focused podcasts because I consume those. Uh, I've I've come in, uh, in contact with other shows that are kind of about sound that are a lot more... Um, they talk a lot without a lot of like utilization of sound. But I guess the early on, uh, I was just like, oh, the story of the NBC chimes, like boom, boom, boom. There must be a reason why that exists. So let's go find it. 
And at first it was interesting because like literally no one believed in it. <laughs> I, I had a vision for it because I already knew 99% Invisible. I was confident that I could make something close to that as long as I just allocated the resources for my studio to do it. And that was, uh, that was the most painful part is just like doing something really high, highly crafted that took us, I mean, all of our shows take two or 300 hours to make uh, in pre-production, outlining, interviews, scripting, re-scripting, table reads, re-scripting, more table reads, send it to audio, send it to an editor, put, it, put the script into audio form, then send it to our designers, rewrite it recraft it <laughs> over and over and over again. So the, for me, early on, it was just a gut churn because it was so expensive to make. But everyone on my staff was paid and everyone who touched it was paid. And that was really important to me. So I uh, <laughs> ate it really badly at first. And then luckily, like around episode 10, the advertisers started to click and then it just slowly kind of puttered along and, and finally started to make uh, at least started to break even with with the costs. Did you find that's true of your sound career when you were starting, like maybe before de facto, when you were just starting out, that was the case too, where it was this kind of like slow build and then eventually that snowball started to roll? And how did that kind of form just from your sound design career? Yeah, for me, back when I was starting with sound, I knew I wanted to do post audio pretty early on. I think like many people, I thought, oh, I want to record bands and do music. And then I got into recording school and I was like, I don't really like the culture of that. Uh, it wasn't so much about the the, the crafting of it because I, I really enjoyed that. But it just seems like it was a really cultural, like kind of having to play this cool guy part all the time. And I just didn't, I don't know. I, I, I met post people and sound designers and they were just like more creative scientists in the way that they communicated than like trying to be cool all the time and so i just loved that like culture is that people were nerdy helpful friendly and they didn't have to kind of put on like a big like show about how cool they are but back then i i, I just had to get in any any way i could and the the thing for me that that i found was just pointing a camera as an intern at a news anchor because i knew that there was a audio board within probably 30 to 50 feet of that news anchor and the big thing that I was I was kind of uh, betting on is just that, oh, I'm going to get myself in here in hopes that there's an audio person that would take me under their wing. It's exactly what happened is that audio person just took me under their wing, just taught me everything about setting up for these live shows. And then that that was the, the like spark that took me from uh, kind of a local news station to L.A. to a news station to another news station in L.A. to meeting someone who then vouched for me uh, to do post at another station. And then it just like slowly... It's very complicated. Uh, and, and I'm sure people ask you, just like they're asking you, like, how do you become a sound designer? And it's like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everyone I know comes at it from a totally different direction. So uh, the thing that I always say is just like, as long as you have amazing like real or portfolio pieces, even if you strip sound design and, and put things on there with a big disclaimer, those are the things that always get our attention. When we hire, we get a thousand applicants. And this is after making the application very kind of like difficult anyway. And so the things that always like make us go, whoa, oh, okay, oh, we have something here is always a real. And it's usually 10 seconds and we're like, okay, something's here. And then we just dive into it. I came from like classical music where everything was like blind audition. So that's kind of what happens now is just everything is so like talent based. We don't have names attached. We don't have anything attached. We just see a reel that's hopefully completely unmarked. And then we just go, oh my goodness, that's, that's really good and thoughtful. But yeah, it's just so windy and twisty and uh, to get into this world, but it's possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, it's all windy and twisty. And I'm sure from being just you, Dallas, like a solo person to building into de facto sound with employees and a studio, that was probably windy and twisty, too. So I'm curious how that came about. Like, what made you go from solo to running an actual studio with employees? So to bridge the gap between pointing that camera at the news anchor to my first post-audio job, uh, well, prior to post-audio, I was working at NBC and Fox uh, in LA, and then I got a post-job at G4, which is an old video game network. That really is where I fell in love with sound design. And it was just a, it was a bit of a sweatshop, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I didn't know that until I had more experience. But I mean, like mixing entire like original shows in like a half day and stuff, it was like, ah, but, uh, but then uh, after that, I, I moved over to the Discovery Channel uh, as a senior sound designer mixer and uh, spent some time there and really loved that because I was doing all these like planet Earth type of things and mixing things for the UK and, and uh, US and whatnot. But over time, I really wanted to, to work with other companies. I certainly could have worked for Discovery for the rest of my life. It's an amazing job, amazing people. But I wanted to work with uh, people down the street at National Geographic and then maybe work, uh, you know, do some HBO work and maybe some game trailers and things like that. So in order to get to that point, uh, I just started working simultaneously to my discovery job. At the time, I didn't have kids or anything, so I could kind of just work, 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 work. I hadn't quite hit the age where just like that burnout wall like slams you in the face. I was still kind of burning the candle at both ends. So I went out and uh, really it just felt to me more like kind of a freelance gig on the side while I did the Discovery Channel uh, for my main job. But then as that freelance thing kind of grew and grew and grew, my wife and I had to make a decision like, are we going to continue to, to do this? Or are we going to continue with Discovery? Made a very risky choice to say, okay, we're going to get rid of the sure thing and we're going we're gonna to start hustling for every single morsel of work that we have to do. So did that. Luckily, with uh, working for Discovery, there were opportunities, um, and I saw this working at Discovery, there were opportunities leaving those that building just due to workflow like the internal team gets booked out really far so when you have a really high-end spot that needs a bunch of attention to it that went outside because they had the time to do it so i knew that that the best work was usually going to go out of house for the most part and so that was what i was kind of banking on when when i did that so i started uh, i was solo for a while and then it's just like freelancing. I got so busy that like I couldn't do everything myself. So I was like, I need somebody else to like pass along just, you know, prep work to. So I did that, then trained the person up. And then eventually I was like, I can't keep track of all these emails. So like I hired my wife to do to keep track of the emails. And then now we have like three people. And then I don't know, just from that point, there was all these little modifications along the way. Like my wife and I didn't want our entire lives to be work. So eventually she was like, I'm going to step back and then you're going to get an actual producer and now I have Samantha, who's amazing, who's been with us forever. But yeah, it's, it's really just uh, uh, hiring and stuff is terrifying. Even in our most recent hire, it was just gut churn all the way to the end. Just feeling somewhat responsible for someone's income is terrifying. But most of the time, hiring is, a, is there's no choice. Like we get to a fork in the road where we go, we can say no to all this HBO work or Netflix work, or we can say yes, and we hire for it and add more talented people. And so usually every time we've hired, it's like, it's just forced because we either say no or we, or we continue. Do we have enough faith in this client that they're going to continue to provide for us? And so that's where we're at right now. Uh, and it's just a slow thing. Like it's terrifying the whole time from beginning to now. But yeah, I don't know if I feel like I run a business. I just feel like I'm still like a freelancer that 
everyone that I hire has full-time jobs. Like they can go to the <laughs> bank and get a bank loan. And for me, it's like, I've got to justify like the past decade of my life, <laughs> you know, cause I don't have a normal paycheck and whatnot. Right, right. That's funny. I love that. But yeah, it's like, it's a good thing you mentioned that, that like, it's constantly kind of scary. And I think that's true of any creative career, when you're not just an accountant, where you know exactly what's happening the next day. That's always, there's always some like, oh, what if this happens? So how do you deal with that? How do you keep moving forward in the face of thinking, okay, I'm responsible for these people's paycheck, or oh, God, we're spending 300 hours on these podcasts, but technically, there's not too much income, or it's like not a direct as direct an income as if HBO hires you or something like that. I think that I have to kind of on a fundamental level, think about what's the alternative? Do I want to live a life of like, perfect scheduling and perfect comfort? That to me nowadays sounds worse than the situation that I'm in, because I at least personally believe that, you know, to kind of live the best life that I can, like I need ups and I need downs. You need emotional dynamic range to like really kind of explore the world. And, you know, whereas I might have to let someone go because of something terrible, like that, you know, I, I hate to do it, but like something bad happens and I have to do that. It's just like, it's just tormenting. But then on the other other hand, you know, I have a, a child and it's just like blow, you know, my whole brain kind of explodes with new things and that. And same thing with the studio, too. It's just like uh, hiring. It's just like it's uh, terrifying. But at the same time, all the possibilities of when you when you take like a single person who might be able to get 40 to 60 hours a week and then that can be replicated and not only replicated, but then you have other people who are just insanely talented that bring their talents to it. It, it goes from like me to this team of like eight people and all of our brains are starting to mesh and just it's it's like a super brain so um so i don't know i couldn't imagine any other alternative uh, i know even me as an independent sound designer if i could do every single project on at de facto sound it would not be as good as having a team because we pass everything around and like we kind of creative direct each other's projects and somebody might have an idea and, and kind of attack it so I don't know, it's like terrifying, but I also try to think like, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is the whole thing falls apart and I go, you get like an electrician degree and probably still make a decent living, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so uh, it's terrifying and I really want things to work out continuously, but I also just kind of have to have faith that it's, it's not all going to implode. And even if it does, I, I still thankfully have my health and family and all of that. Yeah, that's good. I think that's a really healthy mindset. And at de facto, you have several people, you all focus, you know, on like commercials, ads, TV, those sorts of things. And I'm curious, your website even specifically says like, we focus on brands. And it's very common for sound designers who are just starting out to be like, I'll do anything for anybody. And sometimes they stay in that for way too long. And I'm curious, like what your thoughts are on niching down when the, when people should? Is it a good idea? Yeah, that is a very advanced question. So like kind of niching down. I just learned the other day that the way you said it is correct. <laughs> like niche, niche, niche. Now it's niche. I, I le Actually, I think it's both. Anyway, that's not the question. So the question is, yeah, that is all intentional. And it took a long time to do that because when you're all things to everyone, on the other side, they perceive that and they go, oh, okay, it's a little, little of a desperate attempt. What I've learned is... Uh, over the past decade plus of running the studio, we've been able to do all kinds of stuff. Like I've done stuff from, you know, in-game programming, building all that stuff out to throwing things over the fence uh, for game studios. I've learned uh, over doing those things that I, the business of that is very hard. And uh, if other people want to build their business on doing that, uh, more power to them. It's just tricky because there's it, just to get all the rates kind of fair and then be able to run a business and have employees and things like that. 
Plus, uh, I've just learned in general that the way that the economics of everything works is that entities want content for as little as possible financially, and they and marketing and ads pretty much in many cases have infinite budget compared to content. And so uh, I used to mix a lot of reality shows and uh, even heavier, bigger type of shows for cable networks and whatnot. And uh, there were times where I would be mixing like a 30 minute show for something like an HGTV or discovery or something and make just as much, if not more doing the 30 second promo for that same thing. <laughs> and I was like, what if I just didn't do all this and only focused on the short <laughs> stuff? So over time it was just a natural progression. I, I found what I really enjoyed doing. And, uh, it's not that we don't take other things on. It's just that like things like documentaries, we we just have a very high bar to, to get that in. Now we're mixing a lot of anime and uh, like feature like full length anime, and it's purely because we want to because it sounds like super rad. Uh, but for the most part, um, that stuff's not going to go away just because we niche down on the website. But what we did on the website is really just crystallize exactly for these very high end ad agencies and networks, kind of what we are extremely confident on, and those are trailers, ads, game trailers, things like that. It's stuff that we can just crush at the highest level. And so that, that was very intentional. And that line that you see on the website, it says, um, it says the sonic source for the world's most thoughtful brands. Every word of that was crafted and actually consulted on. That's called a positioning statement. And uh, a lot of people, when they, when they think about kind of their positioning statement, most people are trying to put the most generic catch-all thing there, but that doesn't really benefit you. So what it'll be is something like a sound design company dedicated to you know, TV, film, games, documentaries, blah, 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 blah. It's very uninspiring of a, of a positioning statement. And it's also, uh, there's just problems with it. Like when you say a sound design, blah, what you're saying is one of many, a equals one of many. So there's all these others, but we're one of them. So you generally, if you have a positioning statement, you want to try to find a way to remove the a and make it a the, because you want to seem like you are a hot commodity. So the sonic source uh, we wanted to leave it as slightly open-ended with Sonic Source because there's a lot of ways. Uh, I've seen this natural progression of being like a post-audio house to now stretching pretty far into almost like becoming an audio agency because now we're getting like bizarre asks and installations or like very high-end um, commercials where we're actually consulting it ahead of time. So the Sonic Source for the world's most thoughtful, I'm basically saying most thoughtful brands like, are you thoughtful enough to come to us? It's a bold statement, but it's also just turning things on its head. And with a website, with a company, and if you look at kind of our branding and all that stuff, I'm not there to tell you every single thing we do, but I'm there to give you like a visceral, emotional curiosity. So like your website, how you present yourself, things like that, create curiosity as your number one point not like I will do anything for any money. Uh, the things that hurt me the most to see is like some positioning statement, which was like a sound editing, mixing, blah, 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 who can fit within your budget. Like, oh God, please don't. <laughs> but it just, it just does not make you look good. It makes you look real desperate. So, and I know, and the flip side, we are all desperate. I'm desperate. Please give me your work, you know? <laughs> but, but yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a dance to this, you know? And, and, and I, the way that I look at it is like, if we can't, give curiosity to to our company or, or someone painting a picture of us and having some kind of like this vibe to us. How can we understand the vibe and what other companies who come to hire us, how do we understand what they're doing if we can't do it for ourselves? So that's that's always been my self-imposed kind of goals with projecting the company. 
I like that. And it's it's I, I liken it a lot to dating. It's it's very easy to be desperate and then lose everything, right? Like if you like, oh, please go out with me, please go out with me. That's not going to happen. It's never going to work. And the same goes for freelance working in the ways we do, where you can be like, please hire me, please hire me, please hire me. That's just not going to work. So I'm curious in what ways, other than this like position statement, which is literally the best I've seen in the entire audio industry, and I love all this business stuff and you're crushing it. I'm curious, what other things are you doing maybe in terms of negotiating or when someone emails you, you're saying you say something like to make sure they're qualified and filtered. Like, how are you qualifying these people? I was literally about to say that. I think a lot of people don't even know the term monology qualifying a lead. Just like dating, you're not just going to say yes to everything. You know, you got to like have some sort of like level and standard. It's like, is this person treating me well? You know, can I contribute to this person? And so if there's a lopsided balance, and I think the podcast has something to do with this because I wanted to like on a sideways way prove that our team and myself understands content and relating with people. But yeah, qualifying is something that uh, Samantha and I do a lot. I'm the creative director of the studio. So I'm thinking about what do we need to achieve? And she's the producer. She does the bidding, all of those things. And she's trying to kind of boil it all down to how long is it going to take us? And what are the worst things that could happen? What are the best things could happen? Um, you know, we, we have a big team now, so we need to make a profit and things like that. What's our value to these companies? Because there is an argument for um, the hourly-based billing and value-based bidding. And so those uh, generally most of the time, until you start getting to these upper levels of advertising and really big shows and things like that, most of the time, like hourly is pretty much going to get you in the ballpark. But when we find ourselves um, launching a new vehicle that has not been seen, and it's like the marketing budget's unbelievable, it's on every NFL game, it's in the Super Bowl, like then things start to go value-based. Like You have to kind of look at it and go, okay, what is it that we're bringing to the table here? What is the pressure that's involved? How many people are going to be watching this? How many cooks are going to be in the kitchen on their side, my side? How much do I, as the creative director, need to be in meetings and like working out every single thing with the designers and things like that? So all that plays into kind of this value-based thing that we kind of start with a baseline of, here's how long we think it's going to take. Here's the value that we think we can bring. But every single thing, I mean, we bid two, three, four, maybe... I mean, more than that every single day. And so we're, we're vetting everything. If it's somebody we've already worked with, you know, it's really easy to kind of nail that down. If it's brand new people, we have to kind of go, okay, what's their vibe? And if we get anything like where it starts to turn negative really quickly or like confusing or like email skills are really bad or we feel like we're just this throwaway entity, uh, usually we don't say no. We just go, what is this like headache going to cost? And then, you know, usually it weeds itself out. But the funny thing is, is that sometimes it doesn't. And we throw out a big giant number and they go, okay. And it's like, oh, uh, okay, I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> and sometimes it's a, it's a disaster. Sometimes we just caught someone on a bad day. Sometimes they're just trying to solve a huge problem and then they turn out to be amazingly sweet people. But the great thing too is like over the years, Sam and I and our team have collectively um, reevaluated every single client we work with. We yearly talk about where we want to go and we talk about what's working, what's not, and we will weed out clients that we don't want to work with. And it usually has nothing to do with the actual work. It almost always has something to do with a very like poor producer or like when things kind of go sour when they don't need to. So yeah, I have no idea if I haven't answered your question, but I went on a little no, tangent that's great. <laughs> no, I love it. That's that's what we're here for. We're here for just chatting. Wait, you're recording this? Oh yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should have told you. So it's a, it's a funny thing because 
when you are kind of qualifying all these leads, which is so important, so, so huge. Like when I learned it, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it makes things so much easier. Mm-hmm. But it, it does this, it does this interesting thing because as soon as you start doing that, as soon as you start asking questions, their respect for you goes up from the client. Like they tend to go like, oh, interesting. Like you're not just a throwaway. And the, the reality of qualifying a lead too is that a lot of people who are hearing this right now are like, I just want to have work. And I said yes to literally everything at the beginning. But I think that the thing when you say yes to everything at the beginning that you need to be on alert for is that you're getting an extremely small sample size of the industry. So I see this all the time. Like somebody on Twitter will be like, I got this big job for the first time, my big break, and it just turned into a complete disaster. It's not necessarily because of you. It's that... There first needs to be questions of why it went all the way down to somebody who's just starting out, because there could have been a lot of people who said no to get to that. So there's a good chance. So a lot of persistence just gets you through all of those tricky places. I'm very thankful a decade plus after to be able to like highly curate who we work with. I mean, that is a very, very great position to be in. And it doesn't mean that's going to stay this way. I hope it does. But early on, I, I know that a lot of people are just like, I say yes to everything. But I think that the encouragement I would give in that case is just don't take one individual or a couple of individuals as what the industry is, because it's really not. I would say the higher up the food chain we get, so meaning like, you know, say something kind of a local TV commercial from a local teeny tiny ad agency, you know, could be very kind, great people, could be disastrous because, you know, it's like a hot, hot stuff in Cleveland and they run the town and they treat everyone like garbage because everyone needs, needs work. But then when you start to get up to like the levels of like a Wyden Kennedy agency or um, HBO or Netflix, Bethesda Softworks for the most part, like when you're up on those levels, for the most part, uh, unless the culture of the company is toxic, you have amazingly talented people like Cartoon Network, for example, like they they achieve such great results. And they do it like when they note and they can communicate, they are just so kind. Like if we're totally off, like if they're like, oh, you know, this is not the direction we want to go. It's just like, but God, I love what you did here. Oh, I see what you're doing here. But here's a little bit more framing because I think you're thinking of it like that. But they're just so encouraging. And I find that pretty much across the board with all the highest end companies. Once you're getting to that level, like no one has time to pretend. Like pretty much everyone has like kids that they want to go home to, at, at you know, at the end of the day. So there's just not a lot of room to make incredibly high-end work and pretend and treat people badly because all those people are going to be the ones that actually achieve the goals. So yeah, I don't know. Just the longer, I guess the encouragement would be is like the more you persist, generally, the more you'll find very kind people. And as you move your way up the food chain, like, I don't know, just jerks don't make it to the top for the most part. <laughs> I know that there's there's exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, uh, it's very rare to have a really bad apple uh, at the top of a uh, one of these giant agencies or networks. Yeah, I found that to be true as well. It, it gets kinder the more advanced you get, which is great. That's a wonderful thing to run into. It just gets norm- more normal. It's amazing the, the level of work that we'll work on. And it's just like, but it's so much more normal. Yeah, people are, yeah, people become more sane and normal. It's those mid-range things where like people are trying to get to the next level where like people start to get really angry and pretend and like, I don't know, start to be demeaning or stepping on people. Not all the time, but uh, I don't come across it that much anymore. But it definitely, once every few weeks, we'll get some sideways thing that we're like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> and then we'll, we'll deconstruct it and we'll figure it out and get to the bottom of it. Do you feel like making all this content, let's say like you have a TED Talk that has almost 2 million views, so you're crushing my TED Talk, and you have, uh, you have a podcast which is also crushing it. Like, Do you find this content has also helped inform 
clients coming to you, like they kind of have a filter or at least know who you are and be like, oh, I'm really connected to these people. I want to reach out to them over somebody else who may be working in ads. Like, how has that content informed what you do? I mean, on very rare occasions, it can be direct work, but more often than not, it's an X factor that doesn't necessarily play a direct role, but it plays an influential role. For example, I might be uh, like one of our biggest collaborators right now is Netflix. Last week, we did 33 trailers for him. But how we got into that was uh, very innocently. Like, I remember I, I just, um, I don't know how I got in contact with, or somebody connected me with the, one of the higher-ups uh, in the audio department. Turns out he was the audio director, uh, or at least whatever you'd call the audio director at Netflix. And um, usually in companies like that, the audio people don't have the ability to really start farming things out. Usually that goes into producers and business people and whatnot. So I didn't think anything of it. Like, I was just like, oh, audio person, let's, let's you know, geek out on audio stuff like I can do. And um, I don't know, we got together and, and he knew the show. So we were talking about different shows. And for me, I was just like, God, I really want to tell the story of the Netflix to dumb sound. Do you have any idea where I can find this? So we're not talking business. I'm trying, not trying to sell anything. I didn't even expect anything. So uh, anyway, we kind of just, we're trying to help each other out. We're just nerding out, like learning about each other's background, you know, as, as audio people do. And um, over time, like he just starts kind of showing me around Netflix and meeting different people. And one thing leads to another and a business person's like, hey, do you do this sort of thing? And I'm like, oh, yeah, my company does that. Yeah, we do a lot of mixing of trailers and blah, 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 blah. And then it starts to turn into business. And so like it can open doors in a unique way, but it doesn't necessarily go. Like, it's not like we put a podcast out. We get work because someone heard the podcast. Uh, also, I'm very protective of the show not being a marketing piece for DeFacto. At the very end, it says that it's produced out of DeFacto Sound, but that's it. So I don't want it to feel like an ad uh, at all. Um, there has been occasionally we'll put a little mid-roll in there that's kind of like a little peek behind the curtain. But we don't talk about ourselves, which I think helps with kind of the, the size of the audience because the vast majority of the audience are just normal, non-audio people. But yeah, it's been an X factor that kind of then led into like, you know, a TED talk or meeting this person or scientists and acousticians and sound designers reaching out through LinkedIn or it's amazing. Like it's just, I'm, I'm so fortunate. And uh, I, in a lot of ways, I was very lucky to have that click. A lot of ways it was Roman Mars that amplified it early on. And then it was a lot of risk of, of just financially bleeding to death for the first 10 episodes to even try to get it out <laughs> but worth it worth it in the end now for sure yeah. yeah i mean even my wife was like at the time she was like you do not need to be wasting your you need to be growing the facto don't waste your time with a podcast and I, I hindsight i'm like yeah she's right but it was just the deep down even my employees i don't think really got it at first uh it really mm -hmm. took making it for a bit and seeing other people resonate with it for everyone to start understanding it that's the thing when you're making like a passion project just expect that no one is going to get it. And that's fine. Uh, it's just, you know, it's tricky. It was, it was terrifying. It's still terrifying. It's always terrifying. But luckily, we, have, we, have, we do have ads and we actually do make income for the podcast. And uh, so it's not so bad now. Yeah, good, good. I love that. I love that. And when you are working, considering, you know, just the podcast alone, you're passing between multiple people, but also all your work for DeFacto, you're passing between multiple people. Because sound design is also so intuition based and even mixing and stuff like that, too, can be. And how do you know what's right amongst a group of people who may all have different biases and different opinions? Well, it's important to think about subjectivity versus objectivity. Um, I mean, I just did two really heavy reviews today. So my job basically is receiving screeners all the time and giving notes and thoughts and not only just saying, I don't like this, but saying like, here's some sonic ways of, of trying, like try this or try this or do, do this stuff. 
it took me a long time to realize like what I hear in my head isn't necessarily the best way to go. It's just what I hear in my head. And um, when I do listen to things, I'm really trying to think of like, what does the client want? What do I like stylistically? And what does the sound designer, what is the sound designer trying to do? And can this sell as is? And usually uh, if I'm making a change that's drastic in any sense, it has a lot, a lot to do with like client notes to begin with. Uh, I also spend a good amount of time doing creative calls kind of ahead of time just to kind of get everything organized before we send it into sound design. So yeah, I think that um, I'm always pushing people to take chances. That's really tricky though, being a boss and having people take chances. But I just get so excited when I hear fresh things in the podcast uh, or because the podcast is the thing we can control fully. Usually on the sound design front, it's 95% is like pretty clear of what we're going to go for. Even if it's a super epic over the top car spot, like it's pretty clear we can hear like kind of this big uh, influential thing or this big kind of over the top thing. So I don't know. I think it's just like early on in my, uh, I was very highly protective of like the sound that I want to come out of de facto early on. And over time, that has morphed again from that hive mind and multiple brains that are bigger than one. And so I think the reason that now so much really good work comes out of the studio is because of the team. The team is so good. Like they, most of them have been there for five plus years and we get each other. We know how each other thinks. We know what's objective, what's subjective. And then, uh, and then when in doubt, we'll toss it over the client and say, Hey, we're, we're toying around with this thing. It's just communication. Like, uh, cause again, like we don't just send something to a client and go, you got the de facto sound. No, it's just like, <laughs> what do you think about this? Like we kind of bang in our head. We're going in circles a little bit. Like need some fresh ears on this. What do you think? And so it's, Again, being cool, being uh, communicative, dating, you know, dating. You just, what would you do if you were on a date? <laughs> you know, with these clients, sometimes, sometimes we're like on a first date with clients. Sometimes we're on a 10th date. You know, sometimes we're married to the client. And uh, again, we still need to make them, we definitely need to make the married ones happy. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, it's funny because like with, with all of that, with all of those things that you're thinking about, you're almost kind of combating perfectionism in a really good way because you, sometimes you will say to the client, what do you think? You're not sitting there with that thing, tweaking it for 10 days, hoping that you get it perfect and then sending it to the client, hoping they'll like it. Sometimes you will just send it off. And I think that's really brilliant. We also encourage the client, especially because we work a lot in video. I also heavily encourage the editors to pace things out. Like if, if you're trying to go for something, you know, there's plenty of sound effects out there and plenty of great sound effects that you can toss in there. Uh, all the best work that uh, comes out of our team is a combination. It's not just us. Like somebody just doesn't send us a silent video and we just do our magic. So much of great sound design has to do with timing and pacing and like what the editor's doing. Nine times out of 10, like I think the editor deserves equal credit just for giving the opportunity because the editor has to hear it in their head to really like understand what we can achieve. Because if they're just willy nilly doing something now, put your magic on it. We're like, oh, there is no magic here. There's n there is no magic in sound design. It's like it's very methodical. It's very creative. It's very thoughtful. We're trying to solve problems, but it's not magic dust. And again, 20,000 hertz de facto sound. What I'm trying to crush is the idea that of audiophilism. I mean, audiophile is not necessarily a bad word. I don't use it because it's turned into someone who is more than others. It's like a gatekeepy term. And it took years for it to turn into a gatekeepy term. So I don't really use that. And I don't like talking about magic because everything we do is very practical and what we're trying to do. And, and I can communicate that. I also just don't market like that. Like, you know, we sprinkle magic dust all over this. It's just like, I don't want, I want people to know what we can do and what we can't do. 
so I'm much more about educating clients and uh, and really encouraging them to uh, to do sound design passes. If they don't have something, send us something rough, and we'll throw like. 30, 40, we'll make 30 or 40 sound effects, send it to them and say, hey, move it around. Because again, we can't move the picture. We'll suggest it on our side and we'll say, oh, if you move this a little bit here, the pacing might be a little, and we do that all the time. But for the most part, um, it's a lot of communication. It's dating. (laughs) Keeps coming back to that. And I love it. That's what I tell my students too. It's like, it's just like that, except without the kissing. It's just the same thing. Gross. (laughs) So I'm curious for you in what you do inside or outside your niche, it can be alive or dead. I'm curious if you have role models that you're like, that's the person. That's someone I look up to. Oof. Okay. Kind of in any regard? Any regard. Roman Mars for sure. Yeah. Because I started de facto sound back when 99% Invisible started. And uh, that was a huge turning point for me. It was like 99% of Visible and Radiolab. And for those of you who don't know, both podcasts. Both of those came out around the time... Radiolab was first, so it was around the time I started my career. And 99% of Visible started roughly about the time I started my studio. And the thing that I loved about Radiolab is it was audio only, and they were just really pushing boundaries on like how you can use sound. Like, not even music. It's almost like musical sound design or sound design musical. It's like... They just did this beautiful job of just audio only and really like being visceral about it, really emotional. And I felt it. Now with Roman Mars, what Roman did is he took mundane design things and made them just so romantic. And I picked up on that with my company early on. And I knew that I wanted de facto to be uh, curious. I wanted to appear like there's something underneath the hood that you just don't quite know. And I wanted it to be I don't know, just be romantic in its own way. So a lot of the decisions I make on how the, the company's projected is just like get like evoking feelings. And, you know, instead of just saying like, check out this project I worked on, it's more like here's, you know, a sound design excerpt of this moment, followed by what we were provided, followed by like a timeline of this, followed by the like just stuff that's like a much more just um, interesting for someone. So I, I think about that a lot. And that really came, that, that, that seed was planted by 99% Invisible, really just romanticizing design. And I thought, I want to do that with sound. And little did I know, because it still took six, seven years before I started the podcast, uh, little did I know that that would turn into me almost literally doing the same, the same thing as 99PI. Nice. I love that. And as a second to last question, as we start wrapping up today, what when you first started, and that could be anything, that could be any point, it could be when you first started in sound design, it could be when you started de facto sound, it could be when you were just pointing a camera at the news anchor, what was your definition of success? And how has that changed over time? And what is it now? Oh, it changed. Uh, with every opportunity, it changed. It's like being on another step of a staircase or something. Like at first, I'm just like, I just want to get on the first step. <laughs> and then I got there and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm pointing a camera. I want to get over there to the next step. I want to get over to that audio board. And then, um, you know, I moved over there and then I'm another step. Now I didn't know know what I was doing over there. So now I need to learn all this stuff because otherwise this is live and like I could break all of this with a lot of people. And so therefore, uh, to remove the uh, possibility of being horribly embarrassed and losing my job, I learned it all. And then one, you know, once I kind of had that, I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm really happy in live stuff. I really want to kind of go into post audio, which I knew along the way. I was like, I had no idea how to do that. And it was just someone that threw me a bone. I mean, most of the biggest turns in my life has been from someone extremely kindly sticking up for me and giving me a huge opportunity. So I can trace that all the way back to like high school <laughs> where my band director drove me like three hours round trip to take trumpet lessons on her own time. Like I didn't deserve that looking back. 
and then kind of going to college where I had a full scholarship. I couldn't afford it and I didn't have great grades, but I was pretty good at the trumpet. And then, uh, I don't know, just like getting into audio, like some random person over email, like said, sure. Okay. You can intern. Like, I don't know why she did. I don't even, never even met her. And then just, uh, really lucking out and the audio person at that news station being so flattered that they wanted to put me under their wing. And then that, once I got into the audio world, I mean, it was like consistently audio people love helping other audio people and pretty much like nonstop from the point I got into audio all the way till now, it's always been just like amazingly kind audio people in the industry just trying to build itself up. So I would say that like, I feel really thankful for all the stuff that I have, but it's also due to so many people sticking their neck out for me, for my team, my team crushing it every day. So, uh, so yeah, the definition of success is it should be ongoing. It's like cooking. Like right now I'm obsessed with cooking. At first, all I wanted to do was just like know how to cook a steak or something. And then I was like, oh, but then I want to get the, t- the temperature perfectly right. Then my goal was like, oh, maybe I'm going to throw Maybe I'm going to do this or try this. And then like, oh, maybe I'm going to throw a sauce on it. Oh, maybe I'm going to pair it with some wine. Like, you, know, you see how like that progression just gets a little bit more. So I think the thing we want to avoid is um, if you're if you're kind of just starting out is thinking about like going from from where you are to assisting at Skywalker Sound or something like that's certainly possible, but there's also a lot of twisty, turny, amazing life, uh, that you can have between those spots. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. Um, there's so much more to life than just the job, uh, your partners, friends that are along the way, the people you meet when you have to go over here for a few years to try something. And those say lifelong friends. And, uh, I don't know. Yeah. For me, it's just like, uh, I wouldn't change a thing, but yeah, every, every month it's like a new challenge. God, now uh, now I'm trying to think of like my goals right now are just to make like the poppiest, most entertaining, friendly shows funny as possible. We're trying to make the show funnier on the podcast when we can uh, and more kind of like conversational, but in a really stylized way. And then a de facto, I want to expand on the stuff that we're doing. We do a lot of car spots and I want to continue to expand that. We do a lot of game trailers, but I haven't really spent a lot of time trying to expand on that. And we're doing lots of Netflix, HBO, Discovery, um, all those those things. And I think if, uh, I don't know, just kind of whittling it to just uh, the best things we can do. Not even the best things. I think that's the wrong way of saying it. Like, so much about the industry is who we work with. Like, we could work on a pharmaceutical spot. And if the people that we work with is amazing, that's all that we care about. Those opportunities come as this whole industry grows. Uh, the other thing, too, is just to remember that, like, I grew up with the people who are now feeding us. And if you're, say, you're 20 right now, like you're going to find your people there and they're going to grow with you. You can certainly kind of skip into like working for people for people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. That's definitely possible with your talent level and stuff. But like, I don't know, it's almost more of a community that grows with you. And then you get opportunities because your friend got an opportunity and like they get an opportunity because someone stuck out their neck and then they bring you along. And that's the stuff that's so much fun about this. And um it's less about what it is and so much more about the journey. Yeah. And that journey is unpredictable in so many ways. Very much so. And I think being happy with the moment by moment life, uh, be, living in the present, that's something that I've always struggled with. I've always thought, oh, the future, like what about then? And like, what about in 10 years? What about it? Uh, everything would be fine if I was just there. None of that stuff is even real. The future in the past is not real. Uh, the only thing that's real is right now, like, pinching yourself like where we are in this very second like that's real all that stuff you can plan for it but it's not real yet and so i've always just like tried to um become more content in the present and happy now 
anxiety is living in the future and depression is living in the past. And it's no, I know it's much more complex than that. And I've struggled with both. And finding that balance of just being very content with where you are at the moment and just knowing things are a journey and that'll lead to a fulfilling life, no matter if like what you thought you were going to be at 20 or, or younger, that doesn't matter. I, I'll, I'll tan- do one small tangent real quick. The one thing that I hear a lot about is like, uh, like somebody will kind of grow and they'll get a little bit older or maybe they start going into a pocket of the industry that they didn't intend to go into. And I hear a lot of like, well, when I got into this, this is not what I intended to do. The thing that I argue with that kind of a thought process is that I look back and I go, am I going to listen to my 18-year-old self double that age now? Like, no, that person was not smart. <laughs> so you learn like what, what works and what doesn't work. I think early on, it's just like, oh, but I want an IMDb credit on a Marvel movie. That'll make all my you know, dreams come true. Mm, not really. <laughs> you're still going to have to struggle with like the same stuff you're struggling with, but it's a good opportunity. So yeah, I think that it's like really like evaluating like you've grown as a person since that time of what you didn't set out to do and and really evaluating would you listen to that person for career advice now that you're, you know, 5, 10, 15 plus years into your career? Like that person had no idea what they were talking about. What an amazing, amazing last bit of advice and a note to end out on. So as we close out, where can people find you? Plug all the things. All the things. Um, okay, so defactosound.com. It's where we highlight things, very client focused. So if you go there, it's like, you know, if an ad agency person came there, that's that's to for them to go, okay, I trust this company. Uh, if you want something a little bit more like breakdowns and stuff, kind of snippets and stuff, I think Instagram's perfect for that. That's just at de facto sound. And then if you want really ridiculous stuff, we have a YouTube channel where we take like 15 second clips of like a TikTok video or something random and we completely recontextualize them in a funny way with sound. Uh, so those are the three things that I that I enjoy the most on the de facto side. Over on the 20,000 hertz side, you can find that in any podcast player, but it's all spelled out, 20,000 hertz, no numbers. And that's that's where you can find uh, find all of our stuff. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Your insights are incredible. I think people are oh, going to love it. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm flattered. I, I've known about you for a while, and this is so really? cool that like, we're meeting over a podcast. So Mary, if I could <laughs> shake your hand right now, I would. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects. They'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.